This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good afternoon, everybody. Laszlo Montgomery here once again. Welcome to the China History Podcast. Sorry about all those ads and PSAs. There's always the CHP Premium route if you'd like to skip the line and help yours truly out with a prescription. Just to prove to all of you that it pays to contact me with CHP topic ideas at laszlo at teacup.media, this one I have for you today was recommended recently by my longtime Patreon supporter and regular mate, Shorty, out in the Shire of Hepburn, in the state of Victoria, in the great nation of Australia. He suggested Olive Young to me, and after reacquainting myself with her story, well... I couldn't resist. Now, I don't put Olive Yang Jin Xiu in the same category as most of the other historic people featured in the CHP, but her bigger story and the history surrounding her life, I thought, eh, had all the markings of a memorable CHP episode. Shorty thought so, and he's a, he's a pretty wizened old man. The tale of Olive Yang has all kinds of great elements. Royalty, the Shan state of Burma that borders Yunnan, the CIA, narcotics and drug lords, the Ming Dynasty, the Chinese Civil War, the Burmese junta, and the KMT remnant army operating along the China-Burma border. Can't go wrong with all that. Olive Yang is kind of like a Zheng Yisou kind of character. You know, the pirate queen I covered in an old episode, and again when I interviewed author Larry Fain for his novel The Flower Boat Girl. I say this only because... Her story is told in a number of well-worn anecdotes that seem to take on a life of their own and appear in a number of websites, podcasts, and in Baidu and Wikipedia, and repeated one last time in her obituary. It's hard to tell what's truth and what's fiction and how much more there was to all these stories repeated about Olive's life. When she passed on July 13, 2017, at the age of 90, a couple of the titles from her obituaries read, quote, The royal-turned-warlord and opium pioneer of the Golden Triangle dies at 90. And, quote, Olive Yang, cross-dressing warlord and Burmese opium trafficker, dies at 90. I thought I'd introduce her to you in this episode, if you haven't heard of her already, that is. And besides learning about Olive Yang, we could also look at that region that, for most of us is a strange and eh, somewhat perilous place that so many have heard of but don't know much about. Her story mostly takes place in the Shan state of northeast Burma, or Myanmar, and in the northeast portion of this northeast part of the country, along the China border, there was a place eh, about the size of Lebanon called Kokang. In Mandarin, this place was called Guogan. Kokang is interesting in a whole lot of ways. First of all, it's the only predominantly ethnic Chinese place in Myanmar. And there's a reason for this, too. You see, 
Way back during the last years of the Ming Dynasty, after enduring the ravages of eunuchs like Wang Chun, Liu Jin, and the Eight Tigers, and Wei Zhongxian, who all hollowed out the fortunes of the House of Zhu, the Manchus rode in from the north and conquered this last Han Chinese-led imperial dynasty and established the Qing. This, of course, was in the fateful year of 1644. And as the Ming Chongzhen Emperor contemplated his fate and resigned himself to committing suicide by hanging himself from a tree, there arose these Ming loyalists in the style of the 12th century hero and patriot Yue who refused to give up the ship and fought to preserve the fate of the Ming dynasty and keep up the fight against the Manchus till the bitter end. We remember Zheng Changgong most of all, known in the West as Koxinga. He and his progeny resisted the Manchus for as long as they could, which ended up being till 1683. And there were other Ming loyalists as well who fought in vain, and over time they were either defeated in battle, or they gave up, or they fled elsewhere. And one of these Ming loyalists was another lesser-known family, surnamed Yang, who were based in Jiangsu, around Nanjing. This Yang clan, after fighting the good fight against the Manchus and retreating as far as Yunnan province, they were chased out of there by Manchu troops and crossed the border into Burma. And there, they set up their own state within a state and they called it Kokang. And these later Southwest Mandarin-speaking Han Chinese became known as Kokang Chinese, or Guogan Huaren. Again, Kokang is in northeast Shan State. A dynasty of rulers, all surnamed Yang, ruled in Kokang, and was formally established in 1739, the early years of the reign of Qianlong. And these Han Chinese hereditary rulers of Kokang, were given titles like Miosa and Saupa. In and around Kokang, the biggest cash crop by a landslide, going back to the 1800s, was opium. And because the opium business was so popular, it led to a heck of a lot of cash sloshing around the region. And in a dynamic like that, gambling and organized crime was certain to follow in opium's wake. And these Kokang Myosas, or Saupas, maintained a nice, comfortable lifestyle from all the income they generated, engaging in this trade. And although Kokang was located within the borders of Burma, they still ruled it as their own independent fiefdom. It was a place located far away from the capital in Yangon, and it was remote and not easy to get to. And... This is no relation to the story, but this particular area on both the Burma and China side of the border was one of the earliest tea-producing regions in the world, going back to times way before these borders were even defined or imagined. This was where the Ye or big-leaf version of the Camellia sinensis plant, grew indigenously, and where tea trees still stand today, centuries old. Tea is a great business, but pound for pound, it has nothing on the opium business. So these hereditary rulers of Kokang, they were involved in this opium business, but it had never been scaled up to an industrial size yet. They maintained relations with those outside Kokang, 
the Burmese central government, the military, regional authorities, and when the British came in 1824, those guys too. Olive Yangjin Xiao was born to the second to the last of these hereditary rulers in Kokang of this Yang dynasty. This made her a princess in that society, and because she was the second daughter in a family of 11 children, she was often referred to as Yang Er Xiaojie. The marquee observation that all of the articles and feature stories remark about was her sexual preference and that she was a lesbian and lived, acted, and dressed in a masculine fashion. And in a conservative society that stressed conforming to traditional ways, she made no attempt to sweep who she was under anyone's rug. She lived openly as a gay woman, and whatever pushback or societal scorn she had to go through during the 1940s and into the 50s when she came of age, well, no one wrote about it. She was a nonconformist in the way she put herself out there. As a princess... She had some semblance of leeway in her Kokang society, so she made no attempt to hide her lifestyle. She was promiscuous in her actions, chasing her brother's girlfriends and being one of the boys. She wore her hair short, carried a pistol in her school bag, and knew how to use it. One of the anecdotes mentioned about Olive was that she was a good shot. She was given the name Olive at the Guardian Angels convent where she attended school and was also referred to as Miss Harry Legs, a name given to her by one of the ethnic peoples who inhabited the Shan state. When the Japanese came to her part of Burma, she fled with everyone else and lived out in the hills, out of harm's way. Kokang was only 235 kilometers away from Lashio, which was the terminus of the Burma Road, or the starting point, depending on which direction you were heading. So the Japanese were there in northern Burma in full force during their glory years, late 1930s and early 40s. In 1948, when she was 21, Olive was married off in a traditional arranged ceremony with a younger cousin whose father was also a chieftain, and they were surnamed Duan. Both of her parents had recently passed, and her brother Edward had just become the new Saupa of Kokang. Despite her best efforts in avoiding any attempts to consummate the marriage, she gave birth to a boy in 1951. Olive gave him the name Jeepool, which was a transliteration of the word Jeep. The whole scene wasn't for her and probably never was, so she bolted from her family and gravitated to the fringes of society, where the people were always up to no good in all its forms. That's how she fell in with the crowd she ended up hanging out with for the rest of her life. Olive Yang was a very charismatic person, a born leader, and was as tough as anyone she ran with. She attracted a band of followers and rebels without a cause that soon grew into this militia. They were called Olive's Boys. At its peak, her private militia would have about a thousand soldiers. Through her control of this militia and from engaging in illicit businesses, opium and gambling mostly, she amassed a sizable fortune, mostly from taxing all those who ran those businesses in and around Kokang. Her soldiers also transported opium and gold in between Kokang and the Thai border. In 1949, 
Following the founding of the People's Republic of China on October 1st, history repeated itself again, when one dynasty fell and another one rose to power. Some KMT nationalist soldiers refused to accept the new reality and kept up the fight in the regions farthest from the center of power. In this case, it was a KMT remnant army, led by General Li Mi. This was known as the 93rd Division. It took a while before the People's Liberation Army was able to tamp down these last pockets of resistance in the northwest and southwest of China. Again, standard fare whenever there was a change of dynasties. Olive got in good with them, and her relationship with the 93rd Division provided her the entree to grow her organization and expand her enterprise. Li Mi was a Yunnan-born KMT general who had a long list of military bona fides. He was a Wampoa grad, fought in the Northern Expedition, the encirclement campaigns against the communists holed up in the mountains of Jiangxi. He saw plenty of action in the Second Sino-Japanese War and fought on the KMT side during the Civil War. After Mao had declared victory... Li Mi led his men to the mountainous Yunnan-Burma border and kept the fight alive. PLA forces had been able to push Li Mi's 93rd Division Army across the border into Burma. But he continued to make a nuisance of himself to Mao and the PLA with constant guerrilla raids into Yunnan. Inside Burma, the new government led by Aung San and Unu declared independence from Britain on January 4th, 1948. It took some time before some semblance of order and control in the far north could be maintained. So in this power vacuum in such a remote part of the country, Li Mi was able to set up his own territory where his Yunnan anti-communist National Salvation Army could be based. And there, along the Yunnan-Burma border, Li Mi kept up the fight to preserve the hopes and aspirations of the nationalists. Back then, many still believed there was a fighting chance for Chiang Kai-shek to regroup on Taiwan and one day go take back what he had lost. Olive Yang got involved with Li Mi in 1950, doing some chores for him, running drugs and supplies to the China border. Li Mi's cash cow that funded his entire operation was opium. Well, June 25th, 1950, Kim Il-sung ordered his army across the 38th parallel and 100,000 North Korean troops poured into the South and the Korean War was off and running. Things were looking very grim indeed for the South Korean regime as well as for their main backer. But just at the most desperate moment, on September 15th, 1950, the invasion of Incheon was pulled off without a hitch and Seoul was soon after back under the control of the South Koreans. The North Korean army was battered and beaten and in dire need of some backup muscle. And you know the story. End November, not long after MacArthur claimed the UN coalition had nothing to fear in crossing the Yalu into China, Peng Dehuai led his forces across the China-North Korean border and what was initially proclaimed to be no big thing turned out to be quite a big thing indeed. By the end of the year, 1950, the American-led coalition was driven back to the 38th parallel, leaving the Chinese communists with not only a great military victory, but an even bigger propaganda victory. It has been the gift that keeps on giving all the way into our day with the latest movie, The Battle of Lake Changqin. 
And while all this was happening during the dead of winter on the frozen Korean peninsula, Lee Mi was keeping up the fight 3,000 kilometers away in the mountains of Kokang on the Burma-Yunnan border. The covert wing of the CIA, called the OPC, or Office of Policy Coordination, had agents on the ground there keeping an eye on the situation. In 1952, the OPC will later merge with the CIA to form the newly created Directorate of Plans, the part of the agency beloved by Hollywood and all spy novel authors. So with things on the Korean Peninsula looking like they were, President Harry S. Truman allowed himself to be talked into greenlighting what became known as Operation Paper. And here is where Olive Yang carried out a little subcontracting work for Uncle Sam, who dove headfirst into the narcotics business. And with Kokong's choice location right in the middle of the Golden Triangle region, Olive Yang was in the perfect position to be of use to both Li Mi and the OPC. The primary objective of Operation Paper was to fund and supply Li Mi's army's efforts on the Burma-Yunnan border in the Shan State. On paper, no pun intended, the OPC and CIA were to work together to transport all these weapons and supplies from their bases in Taiwan over to Thailand. Everything was shipped in C-46 Commando and C-47 Skytrain Transport Aircraft, owned and operated by CAT, or Civil Air Transport. This was a company owned by Claire Chenault and others that carried out all kinds of secret missions and was later sold to the CIA and renamed Air America in 1959. After these CAT-owned planes offloaded their cargo in Thailand near the border with Burma, people like Olive Young would see to it that all these weapons of war and supplies were quietly transported north to Lee Mi's hands. And though this probably sounded much less far-fetched back then than in our day, in theory... Lee Mi would use this military support to the extent that his 93rd Division could invade China from Yunnan while Mao was distracted with the Korean War, far away to the northeast. And if all went well, and in war, eh, you never know sometimes, this beachhead established in Yunnan province might lead to the downfall of the PRC and the restoration of Chiang Kai-shek's regime on the mainland. But from the Americans' point of view, at the very least, Operation Paper was meant to distract Mao more than anything else from what was going on in Korea. Well, the reason Operation Paper isn't such a well-known piece of history is because it was rather short-lived and utterly failed in achieving its objectives. But despite that, it sure had profound and lasting consequences. And this mostly came from scaling up and propagating the entire Golden Triangle narcotic drug industrial complex. This black op was managed by General Richard Stilwell, no relation to Vinegar Joe. He oversaw the efforts to train and arm these KMT remnant troops fighting under Lee Mi. A number of daring raids were planned across the border into Yunnan that, again, in theory, would take Mao's eye off the ball on the Korean peninsula. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Desperate times sometimes yield to desperate measures. You know, in 1950 and into 1951, there was an upheaval going on at the highest levels of government in the U.S. over this whole matter of the communist victory in China. Not only did no one expect it to happen, no one expected it to happen so soon. Fingers were being pointed all over the place, and the formidable China lobby was stamping their feet and calling for all kinds of bellicose measures to be taken into consideration. The so-called China hands, who were telling people, I told you so, we're really getting spanked and raked over the coals and having their careers terminated for causing all this to happen whispering all the possible worst-case scenarios into Truman's ear were all the heavy hitters of the 1950s who influenced the tone and direction of U.S.-China policy. These are people like Claire Chenault, Wild Bill Donovan, Douglas MacArthur, Tommy the Cork Corcoran, the Songs in Taiwan, and of course, all the civilian heavies in the China lobby. Even Thai Prime Minister Peebun, got in on the action, agreeing to take a few backhanders from the U.S. for his cooperation with Operation Paper. Relations with Burma had soured during Peebun's tenure in office, and he saw being of assistance to the U.S. as a way to stick it to them. And these kinds of black ops that ran off the books, quietly, with very few people in on the secret, without having to use American tax dollars to fund the whole big expensive operation, they, too, got into the drug business. You see, well, before some junkie living rough in the Bronx could shoot Skag in his arms, you first needed the poppies to be grown and the tears to be harvested, processed, and packaged up. Then you needed people like Olive Yang and others to employ their private militias to transport the drugs to the Thai border where the labs were located. The raw opium was then processed into heroin, morphine, and other narcotic drugs that was then surreptitiously transported to markets around the world. And Olive Yang and her boys, they were one of the true innovators who opened up new routes to successfully transport the opium within Burma to Thailand. And she was one of the first, if not the first, to replace the traditional transportation method of mule packs with trucks. She continued to run drugs for Operation Paper as long as it lasted, which, as I said, wasn't for long. Lee Mi's KMT troops operating in the Shan State along the border with Yunnan, they made a couple of attempted invasions into China that ended badly. And this Yunnan Provincial Anti-Communist National Salvation Army, despite all the automatic and semi-automatic weapons, mortars, bazookas, ammo, anti-aircraft guns, medical supplies, and all the American advisors aiding them in this mission impossible, they still couldn't get what they wanted, namely the liberation of Yunnan province. In August 1952, they made one last desperate attempt to achieve their objective, but that one ended just as badly as the others. And after Uncle Sam ran a whole cost-benefit analysis of the whole thing and came to the conclusion that they weren't nearly getting the bang for their buck that they expected, 
They pulled the plug on what was already being referred to as a bad idea behind closed doors. Over the period of 1953 to 54, everything was slowly shut down, and around 7,000 of Lee Mi's 93rd Division KMT troops were airlifted to Taiwan. And once he himself arrived in Taiwan, Lee Mi got into politics and remained a loyal KMT stalwart till his death in 1973. But during the life of Operation Paper, the illicit narcotics industry, something that had sort of been a, a cottage industry in northern Burma, Laos, and Thailand, ballooned in size to a scale that had never been seen before. And no matter how much opium could be harvested in the poppy fields of the Golden Triangle, it was hardly ever enough to satiate the worldwide demand. No matter how many plane loads, container loads, and suitcases filled with narcotics that was transported to global markets, it could never keep up with demand. Those of you who might have caught the recent miniseries Dope Sick, based on Beth Macy's book, might have an idea how this whole thing scaled up so quickly. So thanks to Operation Paper, the Golden Triangle Narcotics Industrial Complex received a once-in-a-lifetime shot in the arm, so to speak. That allowed it to become what it became. The first of the major drug lords who emerged from all this, this was another Kokang Chinese named Luo Xing Han. He got his start working as part of Olive Yang's organization, rising up to become her deputy. So these renegade KMT troops who fled across the Yunnan border into Burma and got into the drug business, at first to fund their anti-PRC activities and who later got co-opted by the CIA, helped to create this monster that dominated the economy of the Golden Triangle. And the war on drugs has been trying to stop this runaway train ever since. Olive Yang was in her heyday during this period. She, like others, was making obscene profits from the drug trade and plowed these profits into gambling enterprises along the Kokang-Yunnan border. She was living large and enjoying the life of this legend that she had become in her own time. She continued her controversial lifestyle and tongues wagged all about the high-profile romances she engaged in with many of Burma's top actresses and female entertainers. One of the biggest stars in Burmese cinema and entertainment was named Wawa Shui. She's still around today, pushing 80 years old. But back when she was often seen in the company of Olive Young, she was only a teenager. In an interview from five or six years ago, Wawa Shui denied the whole sordid affair with Olive Young and claimed it was all sensationalized and made up by the salacious press. Olive Yang's private militia, known as Olive's Boys, they remained fiercely loyal to her up until the very end of her long life. One of the quotes seen in many articles about Olive described her as a, quote, manly-hearted menace, dressed in men's fatigues with at least one pistol on her hip, and hundreds of dacoities under her command, collecting taxes on the caravans of raw opium they guarded across the Kokan Hills to the Thai border. End quote. During the 1940s and 50s, Olive Yang served as a, a kind of a local benefactor up in Kokang, funding free education to students as well as KMT-run military schools. Future drug lord Luo Xinghan 
was a student at one of these KMT military schools. As many people involved in this kind of business can readily tell you, sometimes you had to take your lumps. And in mid-August 1963, after Ne Nguyen had seized power and began to take control of as much of Burma as possible, he had Olive and Luo Xinghan thrown in the slammer. And Olive did five years in a Mandalay prison on charges of aiding Chinese soldiers and allowing them to infiltrate Burma. One of the first orders of business for Ne Nguyen after seizing power was to shut down these independent power centers in the north. Olive's brother, Edward, also known as Yang Chunshai, was forced to abdicate as the final ruler of this Yang dynasty in Kokang that went back to the early decades of the Qing. He withdrew from the scene and later died of cancer and alcohol-related diseases in 1971. He may have faded from the scene, but in his absence, younger sister Olive filled the void and continued to influence affairs in Kokang for a while until her arrest on the way to a meeting in Lashio. Olive was released from prison in 1968, and here is where there are varying accounts of what became of her during the second half of her life. She lived the next 49 years in relative obscurity, although not terribly well-known outside of Burma or the Golden Triangle region, she remained a popular figure who many people knew about. She had become somewhat of a legend in her own time and still had no shortage of hangers-on who served her and remained loyal to her. Some accounts said Olive went on to become a nun, and some said she opened a restaurant or her brother had her committed to an asylum because of her ongoing, unconventional behavior. Another account said she settled down in the center of Yangon in a stately mansion. I also read she did another stretch in a Yangon prison. She was said to have emerged from prison, somewhat destitute, living off the kindness of those who knew her back in the day. From 1968 to 1989, the Kokang region fell under the control of the CPB, the Communist Party of Burma not to be confused with the much smaller BCP, or Burmese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party played a hand in supporting the Burmese Communists. Sometime during the 1960s, Ne Win allowed Luo Xinghan to be released from prison in order to head up north to Kokang and deal with the Burmese Communists up there. And while operating up in Kokang against the CPB, Law capitalized on the opportunity and resumed his career as a major drug lord. In early 1989, troops formerly loyal to the Burmese Communist Party in Kokang mutinied against them and tied their skiff instead to Slark. Remember them? The State Law and Order Restoration Council, the time of Somong and Tan Shui. It was quite a mess up in Kokang with rebel groups and other factions causing all kinds of violence and disorder up there. Therefore, in that year of 1989, Olive rose from obscurity when the then Burmese intel chief and future prime minister from 2003-2004, Kin Yon, called on Olive and her one-time deputy and now major drug kingpin, Luo Xinghan, to use their local connections and gravitas to negotiate a peace settlement with all insurgent parties in Kokang. Kin Yon, an outsider coming from the Yangon area, 
was looking to mop up this mess by utilizing Kokang locals like Olive Yang and Luo Xinghan to more effectively negotiate with rebel leaders up there. By that time, Law had set himself up as the largest drug lord in Golden Triangle history. After Law had been captured in Thailand and extradited to Burma, he ended up getting locked away in prison during part of the 60s and 70s. And Law Xing Han's incarceration opened the door for another guy to come fill the void. And this was the most famous one of all, Zhang Chi Fu, better known in the West as Kun Sa. And Olive Yang, the former princess of Kokong from 62 years before, helped to broker a ceasefire and a peace in her homeland that lasted from 1989 to 2009. In her final years, she lived quietly and ended up residing in the border town of Muse. She preferred to be addressed as Uncle Olive and remained as tough as nails and a figure who still commanded respect. Muse was located right on the border with Yunnan, and was separated by a river from the Chinese town of Rui Today, the lion's share of the cross-border trade between Yunnan and Burma is carried out there, and it's the most porous of border towns, with people going in and out of the PRC and Myanmar all the time. After suffering a stroke in 2015, Olive Yang Jin Xiao, or Yang Er Xiao Jie, as she was also known, passed away quietly in Muse on July 13th, 2017, dying on the exact same day as Liu Xiaobo, in fact. Plenty's been printed and passed around about her non-conforming lifestyle and how, in this very conservative part of the world, she openly flaunted society's norms and customs, living her life how she wanted and carrying out all these romances with the many beauties of her day, all the while, except when she was in prison, engaging in the narcotics and gambling trades. Her son, Duan Ji Pu, was interviewed several years ago, I think just prior to Olive's passing, and remarked that, although he regretted missing out on growing up with his mother, he bore no ill will against Olive. He was, by then, a senior citizen, living in modest, if not humble circumstances in Chiang Mai in Thailand. Some of you may recall, in February of 2021, there was yet another coup in Myanmar, and whatever peace and calm that existed in Kokang was shaken, and there now exist two Chinese-speaking militias there battling it out for control. And though poppy growing up there was outlawed in 2003, Kokang remains a kind of criminal hub that enjoys military backing and where fortunes, big and small, are still made. And it's been described as a kind of Tatooine. It's also been described as another Sihanoukville in Cambodia, a place where all kinds of profits are made, cashing in on all the great sins that humankind has been engaging in since time immemorial. When things in Kokang get too dicey, it's common for the inhabitants to seek peace and solace on the Yunnan side of the border. As bad as it gets there sometimes, it's quite tame compared to the bad old days when Olive Yang was in the middle of all the excitement, leading her Olive's boys and earning a living from the likes of Li Mi, the CIA, and other powerful figures of Burma's Shan State. 
So that's going to be it for now. Once again, a respectful shout out to Shorty in Australia for recommending Olive's story to me. And later in the year, the Tiger, be looking for freelance writer Gabriel Palouk's new book, The Opium Queen, The Untold Story of the Rebel Who Ruled the Golden Triangle, where I'm sure you'll get a much deeper dive on the history of Olive Young and the times she lived in. Be looking for that one from the esteemed publishing house of Roman and Littlefield. Well, 2022 is off and running. This is going to be the final episode for the cantankerous year of the ox. A year filled with enough rancor to last a lifetime. Year of El Tigre coming up. All you born in 1950, 1962, 1974, 1986, and 1998. This is your year. Hope it's a good one, and not just for you tigers. On behalf of the crew here in L.A., bringing you podcast shows each and every week, as well as Indispensable Emma over in the U.K., I wish you all a Happy New Year. To one and all. If you'd like to try your hand at supporting your humble narrator, feel free to mosey on over to the official website at teacup.media, and there you'll find a whole bunch of different ways you could help me get through this year alive. Until the next time, this here's Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a cold and gloomy Los Angeles, California IA, entreating each and every one of you to come back next time for another informative and arresting episode of the China History Podcast.